Well, church, we're going to be in Luke 22. So if you have a Bible, please go there. Luke chapter 22 tonight. And for just a few moments, I want us to consider a theme that maybe we don't consider when we come to think about the Lord's Supper, but it's certainly a theme that Luke thinks about. And it's a theme that you just can't miss when you read all of Luke 22. Because the whole context of Luke 22, of which the Lord's Supper is a part, is betrayal. It's the betrayal of Christ. And so what I want us to think about tonight is is betrayal. The betrayal that's taking place all around the Lord's Supper, and then how we should think about that as we come to the table together tonight. I want you to notice just the just let's do a flyover of Luke 22 just for a minute so we can kind of get our bearings. You'll notice, first of all, start right in the middle of the chapter. Most of your Bibles have this heading, Institution of the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Supper or something like that. And so we see the, the Lord's Supper being taken in verses 14 through 23. But preceding that are, are two accounts of betrayal And then after it are two accounts of betrayal. Notice the the two that take place before the Lord's Supper. The first one is, of course, the chief priests. You notice that in verses 1 and 2 of the chapter. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So there's betrayal, right? And then we see it also with Judas... In chapter uh, verse twenty-two or chapter twenty-two, verses three through six, notice. Just keep reading. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was an, of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how they might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then we have the Lord's Supper beginning to be explained. It's taken in verses 14 through 23, as I mentioned, that we've got two evidences or two events of betrayal that follow the Lord's Supper. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They say, this is not really betrayal. Well, it's not in, in, a, in the sense of Judas or the chief priest, but it is. I mean, they're talking, Jesus has just told them what the purpose of the Lord's Supper is, and now they're totally focused on themselves. Not on him. That's betrayal, at least in a, in a mild form. And then we go down a little further and we see Peter's betrayal as well, beginning at verse 31. All the way, um, of course, Jesus foretells it in verses 31 through 34, and then he actually denies Christ later in the chapter, beginning at verses, verse 54 on down through verse 62. So it's, it's the whole Lord's Supper and the whole context of it is this idea of betrayal. We see it with the chief priests and Judas, and then we also see it with the disciples, especially with Peter. Now, what I want to do this evening is just hone in for a few minutes on Peter, all right? And I want us to see the conditions for betrayal that we see in Peter's life and also the comfort that comes to Peter after his betrayal. Because I think we need to come to the Lord's Supper knowing that we're traitors. Okay? We need to know that we have been traitors to Jesus. We have betrayed him. We have forsaken him. 
And as we, as we experience that and stare that betrayal right in the face, which the gospel gives us total freedom to do, we can look at it in all its heinousness and wickedness. And at the same time, we can be comfort, comforted by the fact of how Jesus responds to us in that condition. We see it how he responds to Peter. All right, so I want us to see, just for a few minutes, let's focus on Peter and see, how, see the things that lead up to his betrayal and then afterward what Jesus does with him. So we're, we're going to work through, I've got seven of these um, signs of betrayal, and I'm just going to work through them very quickly, spending probably 30 seconds on each one. We're just going to tick through them. So not a whole lot of time to, to focus on any one, although we could if we, if we had time. So here's the first kind of precondition for betrayal. Here's how betrayal shows up. First of all, it shows up in being overconfident, being overconfident. Now, if you remember in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. It's that sense of overconfidence that we see in Peter. He won't even listen to what Jesus says is going to happen to him. (laughs) And his confidence in his own strength, his confidence in his own resolve to follow Christ, even to the point of prison and death, is what gets him in trouble. Believing that it won't happen to you is a huge warning sign that it will happen to you. And so we must never forget that we at any moment, you, me, anybody, can absolutely forsake Jesus and walk away. You ever think about that? Like literally, 2016, you might not be walking with Christ. There could be a number of circumstances that are sent into your life. And don't get me wrong, I believe in, in perseverance of the saints. I also believe that a person who is on the surface a saint looks to be a Christian, does all the Christian things, might not really be one. And they would manifest that themselves by walking away from Christ, even if they have been walking with him, or it looks like they have, for 20 years. And it can start in our hearts by this subtle thing, oh, that won't happen to me. Never, it would never happen to me. It will happen to you. It could happen to you. Let's not be overconfident. Second, we also see the, just the real physical, emotional toll that all of this was taking on Peter, especially Jesus' promise to, that he was going to die, and all of that weighing on Peter, and, and just the physical and emotional fatigue that he was under. Look at verse 45. We see it. And when he rose from prayer, Jesus, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, this is not specifically focused on Peter, but Peter's, the whole, the whole disciples are in view here. But what we see is them giving way to this emotional and physical fatigue. And the disciples were to watch and pray in the garden. That's what Jesus told them to do. But instead they slept. The emotional fatigue of mounting opposition to Jesus had taken its toll. Exhaustion had increased their vulnerability to the enemy's arrows. And under this wearying strain of their responsibilities, sometimes we too can let our guard down. You ever gone whole days without with just letting your guard down? I have. Prayerlessness, rather sleep, giving way to the emotional and physical demands of life. I mean, if we carry too many burdens for too long, 
with too little rest and not tending and taking care of ourselves, we can give way to these, these sorts of things and make ourselves vulnerable. And that's exactly what the disciples were doing. And they failed to pray. Their manifestation of prayerlessness showed that really they didn't believe that what Jesus had said was that serious, right? We, we do that with, with the Lord, don't we? I mean, he warns us. He says things. Don't go here. Don't touch that. Don't do that. And we do it. Some of us again and again and again and again and again. All of us, I would say, again and again in various areas of our lives. And it's we're not listening to the seriousness with which Jesus speaks. And yet we fall. We sin. In this specific aspect, they, they fail to pray. They give, they give way to prayerlessness, believing that sleep is more important than prayer. And, I mean, Luke is honest about why they're, why they're sleeping here in verse 45. They're sleeping for, they're sad. It's sorrow. It's not being motivated by some fleshly desire. It's just being motivated by the reality of, hey, we've been under intense pressure. This is exhausting. And they failed to pray. Another precondition that we see is just, especially in Peter, is a growing distance from Christ. Now we see this show up first of all in verse 54. Notice it says, they seized him and led him away, bringing, talking about Jesus, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now Peter followed Jesus after his arrest from a distance. Now that distance was obviously geographical. He was just a, a ways away where he could still see what was going on. But his heart would quickly follow his geographical following of Christ. As he got physically distant, he also got spiritually distant from Christ as well. His actions would soon come, his actions soon to come would make that point very clear. So our distance can sometimes be marked in the same ways. We can be marked by less and less Bible, less and less prayer, and that manifests itself in public denial. Another thing we see Peter doing, notice in verse 55, he starts hiding in public. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. So these are people, this is a random crowd, and he's hiding himself in public in the midst of the crowd. And of course, he doesn't do that very well. (laughs) He kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, as we're going to see. But it doesn't mean he didn't try. He warmed himself at the same time fire that the enemies of Jesus warm themselves. And surely he hoped that no one would see anything unusual in his presence. And this is a warning sign. If we are hiding or attempting to hide, we're moving in the wrong direction. Attempting to hide specifically things from Christ, but also from others. And then, of course, that manifests itself in out-and-out lying and denial. Verses 56 and 57, we see, Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I, I don't know him. And, of course, we could keep reading there, but we see this escalating denial, right? So he's been, he was overconfident, He's suffering with emotional, physical, spiritual fatigue, growing in his distance from Christ, hiding in public, lying, 
And that eventually leads him to these escalating denials. I mean, we've seen this again and again, haven't we? we I mean, this is, such a, this is such a pattern for a fall. It's just, I mean, if you see a major leader fall, and I'm not talking about even a church leader. I'm just talking about either someone in a leadership role, say, you know, a president or, or some important leadership role. I mean, these sorts of things are present, right? This hiding, lying, covering stuff up, growing distance. But especially spiritual leadership is huge. This is why I return to texts like this, because I realize this kind of stuff can happen to me as a pastor, right? I need to be reminded that Peter, one of the men that, that, I, that I consider an example, right, in terms of his boldness and his courage, can also be a bad example in terms of his lack of faith and fear. And we see all of that in our own lives as well. So how does Jesus respond to this? How would you respond to this? I mean, put yourself in the shoes of, shoes of Christ for a moment, right? And you see this. This is one of your draft picks. This is, I mean, this is Peter, capital A apostle, leader of the disciples in many ways. And you see him, and you, as the Lord Jesus, you knew this, that this was going to happen. And you saw him tell you to, the, to your face it wouldn't. And then you go and and you see the other disciples and they're not praying. And then you go and you're you're captured by the the chief priests and you're dragged before the courts. And all of a sudden, Peter's hiding and he's denying and you know it and you hear it. You're aware of it and he's lying. How would you respond? I'll tell you how Jesus responds. He doesn't respond in the way the world responds. He doesn't look at that and cut Peter off altogether. In fact, he tells him why he does it. And remember what we read in in, in verse 32. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, we get strength through failure. We learn lessons that we could never learn by blowing it big time. And one of the things that we can do is own up to the fact that the Lord's at work in that, and he's at work praying for us that when we go through those times, when we blow it and betray him or blow it in some other way, that he is there with us, to keep us, to hold us, to preserve us. And he's not going to let us go. He's not going to let us go. So that's the first thing we learn about how Jesus responds to betrayal is that it doesn't surprise him. It doesn't surprise him, does it? He tells Peter at the very beginning, you're going to do this and it's not going to surprise me. So whether or not, and this is comforting to us, right? The Lord Jesus Christ knows everything about us, all the ways that we, that we have failed him, are failing him, and will fail him. And still loves us and prays for us anyway. He's still committed to praying for us and interceding for us, just like he did Peter. And he's doing that right now. And he's praying for us that our faith won't fail. Satan's after all of us. If he's not personally, his emissaries are. 
And if he can get us and sift us like wheat, just like Peter, that's what he wants. He's a roaring lion seeking who may, he may devour, right? But Christ is praying for us and our faith won't fail. And Jesus knows that and he's not surprised by it when it happens. And we, we shouldn't as a church, now obviously there's elements of this that would surprise anybody. The uncovering of some secret betrayal for years is going to lend surprise to people. Wow, I never saw that coming. But Jesus never says that. Jesus never says, I never saw that coming. And then we should be comforted by that reality, that that doesn't surprise Christ. And if, if, it doesn't surprise, if he knows that about us, and he's not left us now, what makes you think that he's going to leave you when you actually do it? Or if it ever actually happened. And that's comforting to know. Here's a second way he responds. It not only doesn't surprise him, it doesn't cancel his faithfulness to us. It doesn't cancel his faithfulness to us. Let's look at Mark quickly. Mark chapter 16. Peter's betrayal of Jesus didn't cancel Jesus' faithfulness to him. And it doesn't cancel Jesus' faithfulness to us either. Mark 16. Now, instead of reading the whole text, let's just pick up right at verse 4. This is, of course, the resurrection. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, are there. And verse 4, it says, In looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Notice that. And Peter, don't forget Peter. Tell him too that Christ has risen. Because Jesus hasn't forgotten about Peter. Even though Peter forgot about Jesus. Jesus hasn't forgot about Peter. He's committed to Peter even when Peter is not committed to him. We also see that our betrayal or Peter's betrayal didn't surprise Jesus. It didn't cancel his faithfulness. Thirdly, it didn't nullify or render void his future usefulness to Christ. John chapter 21. If you remember these familiar words, you can turn there if you'd like to. If not, I'll just read. The end of the Gospel of John and these wonderful words that Jesus gives to Peter, such sweet words. Verse 15, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I mean, imagine this conversation, right? This has already happened. This betrayal has happened. This is post, here's Jesus, post-resurrection, appearing, sitting down, having breakfast with Jesus, the very disciple who betrayed him, and what's he doing? 
He's commissioning him to ministry for Christ. The one who betrayed him in the presence of a lot lesser threat and lied about him and hid and denied him multiple times and failed to listen to him and was swollen with conceit and overconfidence is now being installed by Jesus in a place of leadership. Again, because our failure, our betrayal does not cancel out our usefulness to Christ and his desire to, through us, bless others. Isn't that good news? That's so good. But it doesn't stop there. Peter wrote books of the Bible, you know, right? So we're going to look in closing at just a few texts. And I just want you to hear this betrayal ringing in the background of these texts that Peter himself wrote in the book of First Peter. So we're going to turn to First Peter for just a moment. And I want you to notice with me verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, written by the traitor himself. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Listen to this verse. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter wrote those words, and that's because Peter did that. He, he was one who was straying like a lost sheep. And Jesus had to come after him. He was the one who, as he wrote those words, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He died for that for me. He died for my betrayal. That I might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, I have been healed, Peter says. Not, but he's writing that, again, feeding the sheep. Writing as an apostle. Writing an inspired letter of the New Testament to the elect exiles. And he's writing, though, but he has personal acquaintance with what he preaches. And Jesus led him through that and allowed him to go through that whole betrayal that Satan desired to completely sift him. But he let him go through that so that when he wrote those words, it would mean something to Peter. That I was one who was straying like a sheep, but now I've returned to the shepherd and overseer of my soul. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And now he's writing to the churches, encouraging them in the same way. We also see it in chapter 3, and this is where I'll close. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What a hypocrite to write those words. Hypocrite, right? He didn't live up to what he wrote there. I mean, think about it. When you suffer for righteousness sake, he didn't even want to suffer. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
said the apostle who was eaten up with fear. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, said the person who didn't. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. He was, sorry, verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Well, he didn't even have that. He might have had that defense prepared, but he certainly wasn't willing to share it. Why do I share all that? Because he was, and he did. Read the book of Acts. That changed. Peter, bold, preaching on Pentecost, calling people to repentance and faith in Christ, telling them, you crucified the Lord of glory. Blood is on your hands. Oh, things have changed for Peter. My point is, is that our past failure doesn't inhibit our recovery. Because he can write that completely transparently and authentically because he doesn't anymore. He doesn't have that same fear gripping his life that it did back then. No, he writes, even with the shadow of that betrayal in his background, that sin that's in his background, nevertheless, as a changed man, as a changed apostle, he can look and write these people to, to whom he's writing in the face and say, Don't be afraid. Always be ready to defend Jesus. Always be ready to speak up on his behalf. Always have an answer ready. Because he did, even at one time he didn't. And it doesn't, God's grace is greater than our sin. It doesn't inhibit our recovery. And just a few more verses. Chapter 4, verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, (laughs) but let him glorify God in that name. The very person who wrote that was ashamed at one point. And nevertheless, now he's no longer ashamed. And he wraps up with this wonderful benediction, and this is where I'll close as well. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Listen to this with what we've considered this evening ringing in your ears. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And he could even add, and by the very person who's writing this to you. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but take heart. I have prayed for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the raw authenticity of your word that we're able to see in the examples of our brothers and sisters specifically our brother Peter here tonight, that we're able to see ourselves in his example and the ways in which we too, though not in the exact same ways, but in similar ways, have failed you, have betrayed you. And yet we see here the way you have treated Peter, the way you have told you weren't surprised by it, the way that his activity and his sin did not cancel your faithfulness to him. 
It didn't cancel his youth, usefulness to others. It didn't disqualify him from salvation. And it certainly didn't inhibit his recovery. But it strengthened him, just as you said it would. And that's, we thank you, that's exactly what Peter did. That even tonight, Peter is strengthening us. That the things that you told him, that when you are brought back, turn and strengthen your brothers. That's what he's doing tonight. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your purpose is great. That you, that our, that your ability to outgrace us and outuse us and outbless us is greater than our ability to sin. And we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you have purposes which we don't always understand, but that are always having, you know, just, just, they just, they just transcend our ability to not only understand, but, but time itself, that our influence by your grace is going to spread and continue on long after we're gone. And we thank you that that's what we see in, in, in what we've considered tonight with Peter as well. Bless us, encourage our hearts, strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.